Good morning. Uh, Please pray with me as we begin today. Lord Jesus, may your spirit come and rule over our hearts right now. May you take your word that you've preserved for us and prepared for us, and may it be a feast for us today of your presence. Help us to understand our calling as your children, your sons and daughters, your family. Help us to know what it means to be part of the body of Christ today. Help us to understand our place of calling, Lord, that you've put upon each one of our hearts. And most of all, Lord, just take what I've prepared and use it for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we're going to look at what might be one of the dullest passages in the entire Bible. Uh, Seriously, it's like reading a page out of the Jerusalem phone book. It's a list of 38 names and 42 groups of people spread throughout seven different neighborhoods in the ancient city of Jerusalem. It's very exciting, very cutting-edge stuff. Churches all across the country are lining up this morning just to preach on this particular text. But I believe what it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God, and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So something in here is useful for us today. And if it's important enough for God to put it in the Bible, it's important enough for us to learn from it because God, I don't think, wouldn't waste our time. So let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. And as we read through, I think you're going to see two basic life principles that come out of this passage. As we think about our message theme, rebuilding what's broken, how God makes things new. First, that no matter how or what is broken in your life, you can't rebuild it alone. You need a team of good people to surround you. And second, everybody's got a place on the wall. Everybody is called to God's rebuilding project. So before I read, let me catch you up up to speed in case you've missed a Sunday. The book of Nehemiah is a personal journal, a story about the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. The date is about 440 B.C. Jerusalem is a broken city. It's never recovered from being sacked in the year 587 B.C. It's laid in total ruin for about 140 years. And there's a man named Nehemiah who works a thousand miles away in the Persian city of Susa. He's a key advisor to King Artaxerxes. And God breaks his heart for that broken city. So he spends four months praying and planning and asking God to give him insight as to what he should do to make a difference. And he gets permission and resources and a military escort from the king so he can relocate to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. He rallies the people there. And now in chapter 3, they actually begin their work. So let me read just the first five verses to give you kind of the flavor of what this chapter is like. Starting with verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassaneah, and they laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, repaired the next section. And next to him, Meshulam, uh, son of Berakiah, 
the son of Meshez Abel, made repairs. And next to him, Zodak, son of Benay, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, and their nobles would not put their shoulder to the work under their supervisors. And so it goes throughout the rest of the chapter. The first thing we learn about Nehemiah is he's smart enough to know that this job was going to be way too big for one person. I mean, he pulled into town. He's got this huge caravan of camels and supplies. He's surrounded by the king's cavalry. He could have said, I'm going to rebuild this wall, and I'm going to rebuild this city. I, me, my. If he thought he could do it alone, he never would have accomplished anything. The job was just too big. I mean, we're talking about a wall wall that's supposed to be 15 to 20 feet high, 3 to 4 feet wide, and upwards of 2 miles in circumference. That is a big job. And once that's done, they've got these huge, thick gates that have to be rebuilt and hung properly. Only then could he ensure the safety of the city. And only then begin to rebuild the houses and the businesses and the temple and the lives of the people inside. Nehemiah just can't just show up with a real strong back and a sense of determination and expect the job to get done. The scope of the work is just too great. And plus, he needs people who know what they're doing. There's no indication that Nehemiah has ever done any manual labor in his entire life. He had the soft hands of a bureaucrat. He needed masons and bricklayers and hod carriers to do the hard work. One summer when I was in college, I worked construction, and I was the gopher. You know, when they said, Jeff, go for nails. Jeff, go for two-by-fours. Jeff, go for donuts. That's, that's my job. But I got to watch these masons make a foundation for a house. And this one guy, he had to be in his 70s, just this old guy, huge, gnarled hands. Man, he could throw bricks in place, perfectly aligned every single time. When you see somebody who really knows what they're doing, you you understand, man, if I tried to do that, you'd have a house that was tipping over from one side. So Nehemiah needed people who knew what they were doing. Plus, he needed people to gather in teams to carry it out. He needed the gifts, the talents, the commitment, and the support of others. Rebuilding the wall was one problem, but he also had to rebuild the people, the community. They were beaten down and demoralized and fearful. And Nehemiah understood that the people needed to get into the game if there was going to be a long-term turnaround for Jerusalem. He understood two very important leadership principles. First, that people tend to support what they help to create. People tend to support what they help to create. Seth Godin in his book Tribe says this, there's a big difference between telling people what to do and inciting a movement. And that's what Nehemiah was trying to do. He was trying to incite a movement among the people. He didn't just tell people what to do. He got them invested in what they were doing. And as you go through this whole chapter, you see that they worked together. They worked in family groups. They worked as clans. They worked near their homes so that they were personally invested in the success of this venture. Call it buy-in, call it self-interest, whatever you call it, the people got mobilized in teams behind Nehemiah. He broke a big job into smaller, manageable pieces, and teams helped him do that. Whatever the problem, it's always easier if you can tackle it in smaller pieces, whether you're writing a term paper or even trying to rebuild a marriage. You look at the problem, and it can just seem too huge, too overwhelming. 
So breaking it down into manageable pieces is the only way to go. It's sort of like the saying goes, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. One bite at a time. And the second leadership principle is that Nehemiah made it very personal. That's why all these names are included in chapter 3. That's why all those names are important. When God does something, he makes it very personal. Nehemiah records the names of all the average, regular people who did the work. At no point does he say, and this is the section of the wall that Nehemiah built. He doesn't take credit for any of it. But he honored all the people who broke a sweat and strained their muscles to get it done. Just all the normal folks who showed up, who worked hard, who served God. And their names made it into Scripture. I think that's pretty cool. And that's why Nehemiah is such a good example for all of us. If you're seeking to rebuild something in your life, in your community, in your church, in your family, I think you have to recognize you can't do it alone. You need to be teamed up in the body of Christ. You need a team of good people to surround you. In the New Testament, this concept is really fleshed out for us by the early church. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. Being a Christian is always a group thing. It's not a solo life. It is a call to deep community with others who share your love for God. Whatever you're facing in your life, you need people on your side, people who are going to team up with you, who will give you support, who will give you encouragement, who will give you energy, all the things that you need, who will pray for you, who will love you, who will confront you when you need to be confronted, and will give you a kick in the pants every once in a while. That's what we need, because isolation breeds failure. For the Christian, isolation really breeds failure, especially moral failure. We need others, and that's why Jesus trained the disciples as a team. They had different gifts and different personalities, but they balanced each other out. Where one was weak, another was strong. And so you need a team to help you rebuild if your life is broken. And if your life is going good, you also need that team to keep things going in the right direction. You need believers, people who believe in God, but who also believe in you. I met with someone earlier this week who was describing to me her job search. She says, well, I've got this person to help me write letters because I'm not very good at writing, and I've got this person to act as a reference. I've got this person who's to use their contacts in the organization to help me get an interview, and this person's praying for me. And I said, you know what? You're writing my sermon for me. You're perfectly describing exactly what I think people need to do. You're organizing a team of people to support you, and that's what we all need. It could be people in your family, or maybe the people in your family are not the supportive ones at all. It could be a small group. You know, that's why we emphasize small groups so much in the life of this congregation. We push that here because we believe that is a healthy model for spiritual growth. I've been in some kind of a small group since I was 16 years old. I believe it's absolutely essential for spiritual, emotional, psychological health to be in some kind of a small group where people have to be honest with each other. We push that. We need those connections where you can be your real self 
and be honest about your struggles, where you can feel accepted and cared for and prayed for and also challenged. And you need to surround yourself with positive people, people who have a positive vision for the future. There are so many negative people in this world. They just drag you down. It's so sour. They can suck the air out of any good idea. It's easy to be negative. And folks, if you're struggling, you just don't need that. And I'm not saying that you have to cut those people out of your life necessarily because they may need you. Maybe you're the positive person in their life, but your inner circle needs to be a positive force in your life. And there are so many folks who live by the motto TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. They're unhappy with their jobs. They're unhappy with their relationships. They're just unhappy. And you add all those TGIF weeks together, and at the end of their lives, they'll say TGIO. Thank God it's over. They will have wasted their lives on negative things, on trivial things. You need people who are committed to the positive, committed to making a difference, committed to doing something of significance with their lives, something that at the end of their lives, they can be proud of how they spent their lives. Here's the point. Show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. Show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. Proverbs 12, 12, 26. The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Think about who you are surrounding yourself with. Are they positive people who will support your faith, your values, your dreams? Are they lifting you up? Or are they dragging you down? And surround yourself with servant people. Do you remember what Jesus did in that upper room the night he was crucified? He, he took a towel and a water basin and he stripped off his own clothes and he did the job that the servant was supposed to do in washing the grime off of his disciples' feet. And he said that we should do the same thing. The mark of a disciple is someone with a serving towel over their arm, following Jesus' own example. And that's why we need to have a servant's heart. And you need to have around you servant heart kind of people, people who are willing to get in there, people who are willing to do the dirty work without complaint. Look at verse, verse 14, my favorite verse in the passage. The dung gate was repaired by Malkija, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim. He built it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. The dung gate. The place where human waste was taken out to the dump. Not a great place to work. It's like, you know, how many of you, if you were looking on monster.com and you're like, you know, what's available under dung? You know, not too many people are willing to do that. And that's why I love this guy. It says here that he was a ruler, a guy who was important, a guy who was significant, Probably a smart guy. He probably could have found some kind of a loophole to get himself out of this section of the city. He could have thought that it was beneath him, that he was too important. He could have opted out like the nobles did at the, in verse 5 where they refused to work. You want people like this guy who are willing to do the dirty work without the complaint, who will be there when life stinks, who will be there when you stink, and are going to be committed to you no matter what. And surround yourself 
with servant people who will go the extra mile, who will do more than the minimum. Verse 13, the valley gate was repaired by Hanan and the residents of Zenoah. They rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. They also repaired a thousand cubits, which is about 500 yards, a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. They did an extra 500 yards. That's five football fields of this wall, this family, this group was willing to do without complaint. They did more than they had to do. They did their job and they went on to help somebody else. They finished what they had to do and then they fell back in line to help make up for those who couldn't finish their jobs. They went the extra mile. How many people just barely do the minimum? Just barely do the minimum. As little as possible. You need people who are willing to do more than that. That's what we need. People who will go that extra mile with you. Surround yourself with positive people, with servant people, with people who will do more than what's expected if you want to rebuild what's broken. The second principle, besides needing a team of people around you, the second principle is that everybody's got a place on the wall. Everybody is called to God's rebuilding project in this world. So find your place on the wall. As followers of Jesus, you know, we are blessed in so many ways. We receive the work that Jesus has done for us on the cross and in his resurrection. He, he paid for our sins and forgives us and gives us the promise of eternal life. That's his work for us. And we're blessed also because right now Jesus is doing a work on us. Through his indwelling spirit, he is working on us to shape us and to help us to become more and more like him. That's why it says in Ephesians 2.10 that we're his handiwork. Jesus did a work for us. Jesus right now is doing a work on us. He's working on you. He's working on me. And if he's working on me, that's a big job. It's a big job. He's working on his church and on other churches. He's working on the state of New Jersey. He's working on the United States of America and every nation in the world. Jesus has a lot of work going on. He's working on us as his people so that we can do what? He's done work for us. He's done work on us. And ultimately, he wants to do work through us. That's what the rest of Ephesians 2.10 says. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So please ask yourself, where is there a hole in the wall that I can work on? Where is my piece of the wall? This is how big God is. He knew you would be born at a certain time, that you'd be here at this period of history. So he has given work for you to do. There is work that he wants to do through you. That's why he's given you the skills and talents and abilities and experiences and passions and personality and opportunities that you have to be part of his rebuilding of this broken world, to be part of the rebuilding of other people's broken lives, to be part of the rebuilding of his church. You participate in what he is doing through your giving and your serving and your praying and your caring and your helping and you're leading, and you're following. There is work that he wants to do through you. One of the reasons we don't skip this chapter is because these people serve as an example to all of us, that God does good work through each of us. 
Our life is not in vain. Our labor is not in vain. Our service is not in vain. We don't participate in the work of God because we have to. We do it because we get to. It's a privilege to let God work through you. It gives you joy of seeing him do something through you. Friends, that is the exciting part of faith. And it's for everybody. In this chapter, you see all kinds of people working together. Young and old, you'll see priests and lay people, the upper class and those who are just regular working folks. There are single men and women, daughters, sons, multi-generational groups, rich and poor, and God uses all of them. The text says several times, this guy and his sons, and later in the chapter, this man and his daughters. One of the coolest things you can do as a family is to serve God together in ministry. That's one of the great joys of doing something like the family mission trip in Mexico. As parents, you get to see your kids begin to develop their own spiritual gifts. You see them begin to emerge as you do something together as a family. And there are ways to serve together as couples, as parents and children within the church, whether it's in the technology department or in ushering or whatever. There there's so many ways that you can serve with your family. It's a unifying, building, healthy experience, and it's for everybody. And you know what? If you're not there, then there's a hole in the wall. You know, in the military, they call that people who are AWOL, absent without leave. Maybe somebody else will cover for you. Maybe not. I can't tell you how frustrating it is when people commit to something in the church and then don't show up. And it happens all the time, unfortunately. If you're there, if you, I mean, if you're not there, then there's a hole that somebody else has to fill, a place that's vulnerable, a place where there are missed opportunities for Christ. If you're not there, there's an empty chair. In 1915, Leon Trotsky, who would one day help lead Russia into communism, was in Chicago, and he was invited to a Sunday school class, which he attended. He was a young man in search of ideas in his life at the time. And For this particular Sunday school class, the teacher didn't show up. Didn't show up and didn't have anybody to cover for him. And so the class sat there in an empty room. So far as history tells, this was the last time that Leon Trotsky was in a church. And in 1917, he led Russia into atheistic communism. How would things maybe have been different if perhaps that day, standing in that classroom, was a spirit-filled teacher, somebody who could open up the word of God to Leon Trotsky. But he missed his place along the wall, and so there was a breach. But you know what's worse? What's worse is that nobody in that class stepped up to fill the gap. They all sat there like lumps, arms crossed, looking at their watches. Nobody took the lead to say, well, hey, let's just open the Bible and see what God has to say. No, they said, it's not my job, and that's so sad. How irresistible the church of Jesus Christ would be. This church would be if everybody was at their appointed task, doing what God had called them to do, doing it, linking arms with others in teams, people doing what God has placed on their hearts, people who believe in each other, people who find their place of service, who are doing something significant with their lives. You see, no matter what is broken in life, you can't rebuild it alone. You need a team of good people to surround you. 
and you need to find your place on the wall. So team up and get going. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, it pains me to know that in the church of Jesus Christ, there are way too many people sitting with their arms folded, looking at their watch, saying, it's not my job. I pray that you would really stir up this congregation and each person to say, who's, who's on my team? Who are the people who are connected to me? Who believes in God, but who also believes in me? Who's going to pray for me? And who can I team up with? And I can be their encourager, the one who prays for them, the one who loves and supports and challenges them. I pray that everybody would really take seriously this challenge to be teamed up in the body of Christ. And Lord, that we would take seriously your call not to do a work for us or to do a work on us, but to do a work through us together as a community to make a significant impact in this world so that Jesus' name would be honored and glorified and your kingdom would be established. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.